actually having more limited resources ends up being a forcing function. You end up focusing a lot more on what the business really needs versus the things that you think that may be in the future and all that. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn the benefits of a low-volume but high-margin business. What are the most important fundamentals you need to establish for your e-commerce business? And why you should price your products in a way that allows you to be generous to your customers. Before our show, I wanted to chat about Shopify Ping. It's a free live chat app for Android or iOS devices and it even works on iPads. Did you know that shoppers who use live chats are almost three times more likely to complete their purchase? With Shopify Ping, you can share products, exclusive discount codes, and help customers make purchases instantly. For more information, visit shopify.com slash chat. Today, I'm joined by Ori Zohar from Burlap and Barrel. Burlap and Barrel creates equitable global supply chains by working directly with farmers to cut out intermediaries and delivers exceptionally flavorful spices and was started in 2016 and based out of Queens, New York. Welcome, Ori. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so in the uh, in the kind of pre-interview f- information you gave us, it had a really interesting story about how you and your co-founder uh, started working together. Tell us more about the background of of the business and, and, and especially specifically the background that brought you guys together around you know spices and food. Yeah, we we have been friends for you know almost a dozen years at this point, and he was always cooking incredible stuff. You know, he was even working at a handful of restaurants around New York City. And I came from a background of business and marketing. And so whenever he was cooking, I just had to have a seat at the table. And we kind of became friends over many, many shared meals. And actually, back in 2010, we decided to start a ice cream business together called Gorilla Ice Cream. We had a little ice cream cart that we pushed around the streets of New York City. We donated all of our profits to a street vending advocacy group, nonprofit. And that was kind of, he came to me and he was a pastry chef at the time and making a lot of ice cream and, and said, hey, I want to do something with ice cream. And everyone said, that's a crazy idea, but talk to Ori, who's our business friend. <laughs> and, I, and I heard that. I was like, that's awesome. I'm in. We're doing it. And so we just ran that for four months for the summer of 2010. And at the end of it, it, it went well. We, we liked working with each other. We sold more ice cream than we had expected. We got a lot of press. We donated money to charity. And that was a really fun experience. And so after that, he ended up getting his master's in international development um, and then in London. And then he ended up moving to Afghanistan as an aid worker. Um, and that was where he was still cooking and still doing all kinds of stuff related to food, you know, on top of his day job. Um, and he had kind of come across this wild cumin that grows in northern Afghanistan that he was totally blown away by. And having come from some of the best kitchens in New York, um, he'd never kind of encountered spices that were that were just that good. And he said, huh, I wonder what else is out there. And started reaching out directly to spice farmers all over the world that were growing spices themselves um, and, and just kept finding really, really cool stuff. And in the meantime, after that business, I went to the dentist and got my teeth cleaned. My dentist was like, what have you done? He said, I've had an ice cream business for the summer. <laughs> and I had four cavities. Um, so I got that fixed. But then I moved to San Francisco and started a mortgage company. I just wanted to do the next business. I was kind of an operator and, and wanted to jump into to the next thing. And I found this opportunity around creating an easier, more straightforward mortgage process because nobody actually has any idea what they're doing when they're getting a mortgage. Um, and so I... I 
partnered up with another guy and we ended up raising money and started this mortgage company that was like a super broker. You'd come to us. We worked with 45 lenders. We'd help guide you through the whole mortgage process. And I had these crazy four years of this like VC backed grow, grow, grow. We raised $32 million, had over 100 employees. We're burning cash, you know, every single month that we were operating, just trying to get to this point of break even. And after four years, we ended up having this thing. We ran out of money and we had a signed term sheet and the investors ended up you know, just trying to trick us to go bankrupt. And so we ended up kind of selling the business and some of our investors got some of their money back. But I had this like crazy whirlwind education on what it takes to raise money and run a business and make all these decisions, hiring people, building a team, what to do, what not to do. And I kind of like finished that whole experience. And by that time, Ethan had been back and bringing in some spices from a handful of farmers all over and said, come on, join me. Let's do this. And so we ended up starting the company, Burlap and Barrel. And what we do is we source single origin spices directly from smallholder farmers around the world. We pay the farmers significantly more in the commodity market, and we set them up to be their own direct exporter, which has never happened. We're a public benefit corporation, a social enterprise. And so we work on improving the livelihoods of our partner farmers, and we get our spices into the kitchens of some of the best restaurants in the world. Um, we used to work with 11 Madison Park and Momofuku Co. And indoor dining was still a thing that was allowed. Um, we, we work with Dig In and Sweet Green, but we also work with home cooks across the country. And, and it, the pandemic really changed the setup of our business. But that's how we came together. And now we're in our fifth year of, of doing Burlap and Barrel. That's awesome. Yeah. So lots of um, kind of weaving in and out of, of your kind of entrepreneurship life and also your partner's, your co-founder's life as well to get to this point. Now, you had mentioned that once you had kind of closed down the first kind of attempt, the ice cream, the ice cream business, and then you thought about what's the next thing and decided to dive right into another business. I think it's an important lesson here around like closing down something or finishing one business and starting another. Tell us about that. Tell us about how you were able to kind of transition and, and pick back up so quickly to, to, to start out on your next business. You know, I thought that I would just like accept some kind of like cushy job for a few years sitting around where like the life of the business wasn't at stake anymore, you know, where I could just do my work and, and not have to worry about some of the bigger questions. But with, with the last company, my other co-founder, we were called Cindio, my other co-founder had stayed on a transition role. We didn't need both of us transitioning to the new owners. Um, and so, you know, I took, I took, actually it was kind of nine months in between just the roles. And so I took some time. I was working a little bit part-time. You know, my co-founder, Ethan, for Burlap and Barrel had already started getting things in motion and was, and was bringing spices in and all that. And so... I don't know, like, like the more I dug into the opportunity, the, the more it sounds really interesting and really compelling. And it's hard to run a company and it can feel lonely and it can feel stressful. And, you know, you're hiring people, you're firing people, you're trying to make payroll and all of that. And so one of the big things that, that at the end of Cindio, the mortgage company, um, I wanted to take a different approach. And so with Burlap and Barrel, instead of being a regular for-profit venture-backed high growth, we've been bootstrapped. We've been profitable almost the entire life of the company. Uh, we've had very few employees. So we've been trying to, how do we operate in a really lean way um, versus hiring and hiring and hiring for some team that hopefully we'll need to use in the future. And so this, this company is almost like a mirror image of the last company in how it's set up. And being able to do e-commerce and being able to use Shopify has been one of the key things that's allowed us to kind of operate this company in a remote, low overhead way. 
Got it. Yeah. And so you were talking earlier about how this, you raise a bunch of money, $32 million, had a big staff and we're just constantly chasing that profitability. So tell us more about this, this experience, this lesson that, that you kind of hinted at around raising money and the kind of pros and cons that you experienced through, through it all. Yeah, I think I think venture capital can be an incredible force to help a company scale up and grow and take over the world, but it's not the right fit for most companies. And I think so many entrepreneurs celebrate raising giant chunks of money. And often, like it seems a little bit kind of counterintuitive to me because you're saying, hey, we weren't able to do what we wanted to do profitably. So we have to sell a meaningful chunk of our company in order to make this work. And so, you know, I think a lot of people view raising money as a kind of ends instead of as a means to get to somewhere. And, you know, what we were doing is we were constantly trying to, it felt like there was a plane that was taxiing down the runway and either we were going to crash and burn at the end of the runway or we were going to figure out and change all the parts and build all that to, to get it to take off and, and fly. And that was just so stressful, you know, like the idea of we had all these employees that we had convinced to join the company. We had to look them in the eye and say, hey, guys, give us another two weeks until we can make payroll. Give us a little bit more time. But we're almost there. We were always kind of chasing. And what was really challenging about that is that I think with also our investors, we're looking for a business that would grow like crazy. And they don't care that much, whether it's our business or somebody else's. They have 20 investments, 50 investments, whatever. They don't care that 80% of the companies will go out of business trying. But we did care because we had only one company and this was our only ride. And so I kind of wish that we had a little bit less of that pressure and we were able to take a little bit more time to figure out like the engine of our company, how it worked, how we could be profitable before we built out a marketing team and we built out an engineering team and we built out all these other things because employees are really expensive. And if you're not able to deploy them in a way that helps your business fundamentally grow and increase your margin and improve the dynamics of your business, then, then it can be the thing that eats your business alive or forces you to make short term decisions that end up being bad for your business. So how can we spike revenue this month? It doesn't matter that we're spending more on acquisition than, than we make back in revenue. And so those are the, the kind of like lose-lose situations that we found ourselves having to consider between, you know, all the time as we were doing this venture-backed business due to kind of external pressure. And with Braille Up and Braille, we don't have that. We're kind of the masters of our own destiny. And we don't have these same, you know, deadlines and superficial goals and other things like that. So it's been really freeing to be able to run this business in the way that we want to run it and at the pace that we want to run it without like trying to like hurdle towards some kind of potential massive payday, you know, really far into the future. Mm. There's this kind of aspect of moving too fast for your own good with, when it comes to, to a business, either growing too fast or taking a bunch of money that you now have to work hard to, 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 to make pay off. When you are you know, in, running Burlap and Barrel, do you kind of try to maybe like artificially slow down the business, kind of take your time? Or like what are some ways to make sure that you are kind of stumbling as you're, as you're building the business? Well, with the venture capital model, what motivated us were these – external, you know, milestones of saying, hey, if we get to this number in revenue, we can then raise at some multiple of that revenue and then we'll have enough money to like for the next six months and then we get to the next revenue. And like we were constantly like kind of chasing these external metrics um, and just trying to make the numbers look good. Um, with Burlap and Barrel, we get to like, I think the largest promise is how, how do we, how do we make sure we keep the promise to our customers where we get them, what they ordered on time in a good way, how we keep bringing them fun and interesting and surprising things. And what we get to do is really do this, what I call like a, a 
high margin, low volume, which is through direct to consumer versus chasing a low margin, high volume model where, you know, we just, it doesn't like it, maybe we made $10 million in revenue, but we only cleared 1 million in profits. Instead, I'd rather do, you know, 1.6 million and clear that same, you know, 1 million in profits by doing the direct to consumer model. So we really get to kind of chart our own destiny, decide how much we want to grow, decide when we want to grow. And because we're, we're kind of well-resourced now, we don't, we don't have to make some of those decisions. We don't have to kind of bet the company anymore. What we're instead is we're investing in parts of the company that we hope will help us grow, you know, in, in the next six months. But it, there isn't that same existential stress. And that can really put blinders on you. You end up doing a lot of things that are urgent and not important instead of things that are kind of not urgent, but really important to building out the company over the next few years, if that's your kind of time horizon, is to build a long-term sustainable company, you decide things in a really different way. Then if you're like, I wanna exit in four years, let's spike revenue no matter what, and then it'll be somebody else's problem once we sell this company. So you you mentioned that there's this um, low margin, high volume versus uh, high high margin, low volume type of business. Can you explain more about why one is more attractive to you than the other? You know the 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 high margin, low volume version of the business. Yeah, and since we're a food company, let me just give you a food example. So we hear so many entrepreneurs that are saying, if only I can get into Whole Foods, that that will be the day. Like that will be the best thing I could possibly do. And the reality is that when you work with any massive grocery store, any big seller, they end up taking somewhere between 55 and 70 cents on the dollar. And so now what you're doing is you're a small company. So your cost of goods sold is still relatively high. Um, your margin is still relatively thin. And now to work with this company, you're, what you're doing is saying, OK, I'll do millions and millions of dollars in sales through Whole Foods. And then hopefully through that, I'll be able to scale up. I'll be able to build margin later. I'll be able to say you're kind of betting the company on the idea that this will all pan out. And then you also have this crazy concentration risk because if Whole Foods says, you know, what, it didn't sell well, then what do you do? Then where do you go? You don't have other channel partners because you're kind of dominated by this one big, big player. And so what you're basically doing is, let's say I, I say that's what I'm going to do and I want to drive $10 million of revenue. And ideally, I can eke out a million dollars in profit through that if I make a misstep, if I don't pack my products right, if they get rejected for whatever reason, if the boat flips over, which has happened a couple of times, not to us yet, but if the like container holding all my mm-hmm. products gets delayed or gets destroyed or there are bugs in it or whatever that whatever the millions of things that can happen along the way then that could take my profit from $1 million to half a million to zero or even to negative. And so you're kind of playing this game where you're teetering on this edge of profitability. And if that doesn't go well for you, then you need to raise money and sell meaningful chunks of your business. Um, or potentially, you know, like that that's your shot. And if, and if that doesn't end up working out for you, then, then you've lost the bet where you bet your business on it. And so that to me, that, that felt like that's what we're doing all day long with the venture back company. We're constantly just betting our business again and again and again. And that's a really stressful position to be as an entrepreneur and as a founder. And what I wished we had done is spent our first few years setting up a really strong fundamentals of our business. We could have been a lot smaller, but we would have been profitable. And once we knew the fundamentals, we could have thought about whether we want to scale or not. So like I think about that, like, let us get to base camp at Mount Everest. Let's not just try to go from the bottom and try to scale Mount Everest immediately, because then you can either say, great, organic growth is going really well. Let me keep doing this. Let me try to double and triple. Or you can say, great, now I understand how this works. 
I understand where my profit margin is. I understand how the business and all the dynamics of it and what the risks are. Now let me raise money. And now let me make sure that I can grow by 10x or 20x in the next 12 months. And so you you kind of preserve that optionality um, when, when you go in that way. And so that's, I mean, that's what we've been doing a lot with burlap and barrels to say, how do we import spices? How do we pack them? What do customers want? What are they interested in? We email a lot, a lot of our customers and just say, thanks for buying. What could we have done better? What would you have preferred? And so what we're doing is we're learning and we're figuring out how the model works better and better. And what we've decided is that we don't need to raise money. We don't need to have a massive warehouse that we own. We don't need to have a massive packing facility or any of that stuff. We can just keep growing, keep reinvesting the profits in our business um, and, and still maintain that. And literally the difference is between do you want to do high, you know, do you want to do a lot of sales at a 10% margin or do you want to do fewer sales at a 60 or 70% margin? And you'll end up with the same amount of revenue, but the, the one that's kind of bootstrapped, the one that's powered by your own customers means that we have a lot more loyal customers. It means that we have a lot less concentration risk and it means that we can kind of control our destiny in a much different way. And so this has been really, really wonderful to be able to, to kind of have this hypothesis. Like when we were in the, when I was in the venture backed role, I was like, I think there's a better way to do this. And now with Burlap and Barrel kind of over four years in, it's like, oh, there is a better way to do this. And, and, and we're doing it that way now. Yeah, you mentioned setting up the fundamentals. Can you say more about this? What does that mean for a business? Maybe specifically like e-commerce business. What are some of the fundamentals that you now try to make sure that you get right or that you recommend other entrepreneurs focus on making sure they understand really well or set up really well before they kind of move on to the next stage? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is just, I think what ends up happening a lot of times when you raise money or go for a big loan or anything like that, what you do is you do these like five-year projections. And the person that you're presenting to knows that you're making it up and that they're going to be like wrong in one month from now. You know that you made a ton of guesses in all the numbers and everything that goes in there because you had to build this together. And everyone says by year five, we take over the world. We own 10% of the total market. And it's this like funny lie that both sides kind of uphold to be like, hmm, maybe that would be great. And so instead, what we got to do is say, okay, how much do spices cost? How much does transporting them cost? What about a warehouse? What about packing them? What about shipping them? What about boxes? When do they break? When do they like all these like kind of hands-on operational questions of how all this works? We got to answer all of those um, first in a pretty small way. For the first year, my co-founder registered his living room as a spice processing facility, <laughs> had over a thousand kilograms of spices in there, and was just packing things by hand himself. And I think what ends up killing a lot of businesses is you end up investing. In, in your business, in a lot of hypotheses, you don't have proven out. And that investment could look like I've, I've heard of a company that pre-ordered, you know, 500,000 jars and they ended up not working. So they were like, oh my God, now I have to destroy these jars and I'm out all this money. Uh, a lot of companies will hire people way too early where they hire somebody for a role that ends up either not being a good fit or not being the right role for the company. So companies will often hire salespeople way too early and say, you sell my product. I don't know how to sell it. You sell it. Um, or, you know, even at my last company, we had a 15 person marketing team. You know, we had a 20 person engineering team and, and employees are so, so expensive. If you look at the books of any company, the number one expense is is salaries and staff related costs. And so. I, nothing wrong with hiring people and you should hire them as you need them, but just know that, that what the expense is and say, hey, do I need to pay somebody five or $10,000 a month to solve this? 
Or can I find a more clever way to solve it for $1,000 a month? Maybe it's a part-time employee. Maybe it's an outsourced expert. Maybe it's something like that. And so that's where I think a lot of companies end up kind of running into real cash problems is they just end up hiring too big of a team than what their business can support. Um, and then that ends up being, and that ends up being really challenging. I'd rather we earlier on in the business, we could have either set up our own, you know, packing facility and warehouse, and we would have had to sign a 10 year lease and spend probably hundreds of thousands of dollars on machinery and equipment and improvements and all this and that. Um, and then we would have probably outgrown it six months to a year later. Instead, we work with a co-packing facility and a fulfillment center, and we have maybe eight people at each place working full-time on our business, but they're not on our payroll. And we do pay them every month you know, for their services, but we don't have to have that overhead. And somebody calls in sick, I don't need to work, I don't need to worry about their shifts. And somebody quits, I don't need to worry about that. And they have all the paperwork and insurance and everything else that kind of we need to support, not just our business, but all the other businesses they service. And so we end up end, end up getting a much better kind of we get a much better level of service and access to much bigger facilities and better equipment than if we would have done it ourselves. And so I think that was one of the big lessons is I think I had come into the last business thinking, you know, if I want it, then I should build it. And this one, we're saying, listen, if we can do it better and it's core to the business, we should be doing it. Everything else let somebody else do. We don't need to be the ones putting jars of spices inside boxes and taping them closed. We can have somebody that has a team trained on that, that has a fully optimized warehouse to just move volume. And then when something big happens, like we get into the news or we get into, you know, we send out a newsletter about a big launch, they can just assign 20 more people to our account and just move stuff in a way that we would never be able to do if we were doing it ourselves. Mm. I think there's something to be said to you about how important it is when you are bootstrapping a business to kind of basically, for, 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 for at least for the most part, taking the right steps in the right order. What were some of the key focuses that you as a company focused on in that first year when you are just starting a business from scratch? You know, and I think you're totally right with that. When you have money and when you fundraise and investors expect you to spend it, they expect you to, to scale really quickly. And so the, the in the venture capital model, we ended up hiring at the mortgage company, we ended up hiring a full team before we even knew. Like we didn't even know, you know, like we think we should sell in this way to these people. So let's hire somebody full time to do that. And actually having more limited resources ends up being a forcing function. You end up focusing a lot more on what the business really needs versus the things that you think that may be in the future and all that. So a lot of a lot of what the first year was trying to understand the fundamentals of the business of saying, um, where are we getting our product from? How do we work with our suppliers, which in our case are our partner farmers? Uh, how much is transfer? Like it was valuing all these core hypotheses over saying, hey, if I how much what, what's an average order for us? OK, let's say an average order is sixty five dollars. Let's say shipping on that order. How much does that cost? OK, that should be about fifteen dollars. OK, what's the what's our ingredients? Well, our cogs are probably around 30 percent. OK, so then so you slowly, slowly start like breaking this apart and all these things that are hypotheses and things that are like conceptual end up being kind of validated hypotheses. And then I say, OK, well, how much are we paying for our packaging today? Well, if we order 10 times more, we could save 30, 30 percent on it. OK, so I know where we are today. What do we So you just start slowly planning and slowly scaling all that stuff up. And what you end up seeing is that you have a much more organic way of, of growing and that like we feel that whenever we grow and introduce new spices and add new sizes, there's a lot less risk to it. So, for example, we had only, you know, 12 or, you know, between yeah, in the first year, we had maybe only 12 spices when we started and we ended up growing that to about 20. We have 45 now. 
But the idea is that in the first year, customers would buy stuff and we'd email them and say, hey, how'd you find us? And they tell us how they would find us. So that helped, gave us insight into marketing. We'd say, what other spices would you like? And if 20 people say that they want garlic, then we know that if we get garlic, it will sell well. So we're no longer doing these like hypothetical exercises and business modeling and all of that, which makes me absolutely crazy. We're instead talking directly to our customers. And so often they tell us what they want and they tell us what they would prefer. You know, this year we've had a lot of customers tell us in 2020, at least, tell us that they wanted a sifter cap in the spices. And we'd never had that request before. But because of the pandemic, we had a lot more people that were cooking at home and and going online and buying spices that way. And so they wanted sifter caps. And we we would we wouldn't have thought of this ourselves. And because they did, we did that. So we changed the the mold of our jars at our jar manufacturing. And and now we're we're slowly rolling out sifter caps across our line, and people are so happy about it, and it's creating loyalty, and the customers are thrilled that we listen to them. It's reflecting itself in sales, and our product is getting even better for all the new customers that are just experiencing our products for the first time. We have a product that's much better thought out and much better serves their needs, and so that's just time and time again, just through having conversations with our customers, seeing what they like, seeing what they don't like, seeing what we they wish we had, which on one hand is a not a scalable approach. But on the other hand, if I can have 10 conversations with customers every week, it will make me a lot smarter. And if we make it really easy for our customers to reach out to us and tell us what's broken and see what's lost and see what's not working and see what delighted them, then we're, it'll, every time we launch something new, a new feature, a new product, a new you know, way of doing business, um, it, it will be pretty low risk because we know from all the customer feedback that it's something that they would be excited about. Yeah, I think it's important the this this the two things you said, which is around this focus on scalability, sometimes is especially right off the bat, is forcing you to zoom past valuable learnings that could potentially change the the structure of your your business, right? That you don't if you if you focus so much on, you know, outsourcing customer service, not paying attention to it, then you lose all these opportunities that you're talking about that you're finding that that's super valuable to to someone that that's running the business itself. And you mentioned too about how sometimes problems cannot be solved by just throwing money at it. It actually does worse, right? It actually hides a lot of the problems that will blow up in your face later. Now, when you have been able to take a much kind of slower approach and you have some profitability, you have some 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 cash to now reinvest back in your business, what would you say are some of the most critical areas that you guys invested early on to help grow the business, you know, to, to gain a little bit more margin, a little bit more room for error when it comes to bootstrapping? Yeah. So we, and just to, to your last point, we, we want, we want to be anti-scalable, you know, like there's a lot of people have an obsession with scalability, especially in the Bay area and Silicon Valley, because that's the idea that's where your margin, that's where the business really starts working. But our idea is a little bit different where we, we instead want to have more one-on-one conversations. We want to, we prefer like, you know, depth over, over kind of quantity. If you get a, email survey saying, please give us your time for a $15 gift card. Nobody fills that out. But if you get an email from a co-founder of a company that says, hey, thank you so much. You grew up in Baltimore. I grew up in Baltimore. How did you, you know, like, and you start getting such valuable insights. And the point is that whenever you scale, the, the opposite side of scale is that, yes, you may be doing things more efficiently, but you may be doing the wrong things. And it's really hard to pivot. And it's really hard to change when you're scaling your you're creating things to go down a narrow pathway, but to do it a lot and really efficiently. And that's normally the exact opposite of what an early business should do. You're coming up and saying, I don't know what's going to work. I don't know what's going to resonate yet, but I'm going to put some stuff out there and I'm going to respond and react quickly to the feedback and keep changing things. 
And so the things that we did invest in once we had a better sense of where things were going was one was inventory because we were growing and our customers kept saying, great, this is great, stop selling out, <laughs> bring me more stuff. So we invested heavily in inventory. We moved from my co-founder's living room into a professional co-packing facility. We moved to a fulfillment center. Yeah, so, so our philosophy in how we invested in our business was just the idea that what's high value and what's low value. High value are the things that only me and my co-founder are uniquely positioned to do. And oftentimes that was around sales, that was around product development, um, and that was around kind of overseeing the high level kind of operations and flow of the business. How are things moving from one into the other and where are we spending more, when are we not, but just to oversee how everything is moving. What was low value is we didn't need to be the ones putting spices in boxes and we didn't need to be the ones that were kind of shipping and putting shipping labels on or having a massive warehouse or a storage facility or anything like that. So we tried to get that stuff elsewhere. And I think that a lot of early stage entrepreneurs think that there's these like massive, you know, minimums for fulfillment centers and for packing facilities. But you'd be surprised, um, especially in the age of Amazon um, and with the massive growth of e-commerce in the past few years. There are a lot of warehouses and fulfillment centers that are just waiting for small companies so that they can come in, get in there when they're small and be able to grow with them. And getting that stuff off our plate opened up so much more of our time to be able to focus on the other parts of the business of the business's growth, including sales partnerships, PR, um, you know, even like high level procurement, like all those things that only we could do. We can't have somebody else negotiate a deal with us. We can't have somebody else give an interview to, you know, food and wine like that has to be the founders. That has to be us. And so we went through and just tried to identify the things that that were the most high value for our business, that we could have a, the biggest impact and anything that kind of fell below the line. We said, OK, how can we bring in somebody else to do it? I don't need to do our bookkeeping. We can bring on a bookkeeper that would be way better than me at doing our books. We can bring on an accountant. And so we, we just started figuring out who are the people? What is the kind of support network that we need around us to be able to manage the day to day of these things so that we can still oversee it, but but also put most of our time against the things that are behind it, helping the business grow as quickly mm -hmm. as we can. Awesome. Now you had gone from an industry with ice creams to mortgages and Silicon Valley, not to spices, obviously very different industries, different customers. How did you catch up? How did you, what did you do to catch up? So you feel comfortable operating in these different industries each time? Yeah. I've always been an entrepreneur that has a partner. Like I've never been a solo founder. Some people can do it and that's incredible. <laughs> it's not something that I would ever learn how to do. Um, my expertise is in kind of thinking about the operations and, and around the kind of business building side of the entrepreneurship. And I've always had partners that are incredible, like subject matter experts. And there are some fundamentals that like, whether it's a mortgage company, an ice cream company, a spice company, a legal firm, like anything that you want to do where, where somebody's a subject matter expert that, that goes in deep and really knows the industry and, and the information inside and out. And there's the person that can be the business builder and can think about the overall operations from it. So in a similar way that we thought about how do we hire employees? How do we compensate? How do we price our services? Um, how do we prioritize? These are all things that were that were valuable. The, we, we struggled with the same questions in every single iteration of every single business. And so I think that there are some things in entrepreneurship that are closer to like a muscle that the more you exercise it, the better you get at it. And you'll just do it again and again and again. And so you know, I think that, that that was what helped me move from from time to time. I still was like a kid. I was still learning a brand new thing. I love learning about spices and I'm learning more about it. And my cooking's getting better every single day. 
Um, but, but that was not, that was not the high value. Like my knowledge of spices was not the thing that I was bringing to this business. It was, it was around looking at our pricing, looking at our margins, looking at our, our, our kind of how we're paying and how we're structured and how we're strategizing and how we're taking advantage of having limited resources and prioritizing. That was what I was able to bring to the table. And that was the secret sauce for me while my co-founder was just making magic with PR and he was sourcing incredible spices and traveling around the world and meeting farmers and setting up that side of the business. And so we were like two sides of the same coin. We complemented each other really well, but we also represent very different expertise that was really valuable for our company to have both of those expertise present in spades. Mm. Yeah, so most of the listeners on the on this podcast are probably either a solo founder that's doing both the subject matter expertise and also the business building or just the business building side. So when you talk about that, like what are what are some of the, the focuses on that first year when you are focused on the, the business building aspect of it? Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, what they get wrong is they underprice their product. Um, they're looking at it as like, oh, I buy this, I put it together here, all this, it should be $5. Where in reality, you just need to look at it and be like, okay, we're going to have some packages that get lost. We're going to have some returns. We're going to have some unhappy customers. And what we really need to do is price it in a way that we can be generous to our customers and and be able to say yes and, and, and you know help them and thank them for taking a risk on a small and goofy company. And so I think too often entrepreneurs end up underpricing themselves. And then when things go wrong or shipments gets lost or stuff breaks, they're like, well, I can't cover that. That wasn't part of the deal. I'm a tiny, I'm not Amazon. And so I think one of the big things is to be able to build in just enough margin so that you can say yes to your customers and delight them and surprise them and throw in an extra goodie and just constantly just help them feel excited that they're working, you know, with, with a small company and helping it grow. Um, I think another thing was we always try to think about what are things that a small company can do in ways that are way better than a big company can do. And so one of those things is having a co-founder reach out to a customer. So we spent a lot of the time in the first year talking to our customers. And I think too many people sit and hypothesize and think big thoughts. And what we do instead is we email our customers and talk to them. You might see this as a recurring theme, but communication with our customers has been really important. And what that ends up doing from a business side is the customer is delighted to hear from a co-founder. We get really valuable feedback. And then the business is able to get kind of better and better over time because we're able to hear directly from them. We don't need to think about something. We, we, we now know because the customers told us what they wanted and what they liked. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think the rest of it is just around like, you know, I think we all have hypotheses on how the business runs, but, you know, if you can get going in a low cost way, I think also too many entrepreneurs think that to get started, there's this huge bar. There's this really high hurdle for doing it perfectly and designing your packaging perfectly and all of that. And what instead our packaging was my co-founder putting spices into a little pouch, in some cases, handwriting the label on it. And you know what? Like on one hand, no, that doesn't look like the products of Whole Foods, but on the other hand, it is a hand, this was packed by hand by the founder of the company. Like, how cool is that? And so to look at these things that kind of on the surface feel like competitive disadvantages, but actually could be competitive advantages that tell a story, that tell how close you are to your customers and to the product. And so that was really a lot of what the business was built on in the early days was around how can we as a small company make it even more special? Like, look at how cool stuff is on Etsy. Or it was like, wait, I guess I'm gonna handmade. Like that becomes a product that's worth a premium Versus, I think so many founders, I hear them talk about their products as being the opposite, needing to discount them. 
because they don't look flashy and shiny and all of that. But I think it's, it's something worth leaning into that can actually feel a lot more like a competitive advantage. Yeah, I think that's a good point about how there are advantages to, to go deep with each customer when you are small. It's funny when you talk about like handwritten notes and handwritten packaging, like big companies are paid lots of money to have handwritten notes and handwritten packages on, on their products. So if you have that opportunity, you should definitely you know take advantage of it. Now, you mentioned, like you said, there's a theme here, which is that you really try to stay connected and stay in touch with your customers and want to have these conversations with them. So when you do have these conversations with your customers, what are some of the most important questions that you usually have in your head that you want to that you want to try to get answered? You know, a lot of it ends up being almost like conversational format. Like you send somebody a survey and you're going to get really superficial answers. But oftentimes the most important information ends up getting exposed in a second or third email. And so what we just want to get overall is to hear from them kind of what we could what we could do better and, and often or what delighted them that we shouldn't stop doing. And so but oftentimes it'll just be a personal note, seeing where they ordered to, seeing if it was a first order, if it was thanking them for it, if it was a second order, you know, seeing what brought them back. Um and just kind of, it ends up being like, I, I would almost think about like how you want to like talk to a friend more so than how you want to talk to like a faceless, you know, whatever. But like for us, just to give you an example, what we found out is that we thought that our customers would be kind of probably in their thirties, probably in cities, probably Instagramming all their food. You know, people are really, they really care about where their food comes from. And what we found out is that our customers were primarily women primarily in their 50s and 60s, and primarily outside of major cities. And this was in the first couple of years that we saw this, and our audience has expanded since then. But then it made sense. Like, it made sense because they're cooking three square meals a day for themselves and their families. They're really knowledgeable cooks, and they have some disposable income. Um, and they're not anywhere near a local grocery store. So they're used to, like, like a, or a high-end specialty store. And so they're used to buying the things that they love online. And so they get it. We don't have to convince them to not go to their Whole Foods. They get they're they're already buying great ingredients online. And like we wouldn't have known that if we didn't email our customers. We also noticed that we had like a higher percentage of at AOL.com email addresses. And we're like, what's going on here? <laughs> and we realized that our customer base is a little bit older, but there was so much gold in those interactions. And so then we we made higher we made our website higher contrast. We increased the size of the text. We made bigger, kind of bolder images. Uh, we added a lot more text on the page because it seemed like our customers really like to read about the products and would read every word on our website and ask us even more detailed questions. And so I think so many companies don't have that connection to their customers or they assume that that connection to their customers is impossible. So like we try to automate things like how do we catch incorrect addresses, right? We added address verification. How do we say somebody doesn't know where my order is? So we, we should make it a lot easier to track your order and be better about proactive emails and all that stuff. But what I want is, is we now have a team of customer support people that all were existing customers that said, hey, I love your business. Can I help out? And they look and cook like our audience. They're super thoughtful. And so when somebody says, hey, there's this new spice that I've been thinking about. What do I do with it? I want somebody that's a cook to come in and talk to them about it. I don't want somebody that's outsourced in another country that maybe never, never even tried our spices. That's going to be a much different conversation than somebody who cooks with our spices every single day and loves them. And so that's what we've been trying to say is like, I want to maximize like face to face time. But in these like high value moments, in these moments where somebody's coming in and, and would love to, to talk to somebody who's an expert versus doing the exact opposite where like every airline has done and every cable company has done, which is just outsourced to the lowest cost possible. And then you just have these really high friction and really frustrating interactions with your customers. 
And instead, there's a, there's a moment there where the customer is upset or confused or has a question. We can either win them over or we can lose them forever. And by having you know thoughtful, expert, professional customer support people that, that know the spices really well, we're able to turn those from like questions into lifelong customers. And that's worked again and again and again. And in the beginning, my co-founder and I were, were doing that. So we got to do the template for that, for what customer support should look like. We got to, And then when we brought people on, we were like, hey, shadow us. Let us show you how we do this. And they just jumped right in and they figured it out immediately. And, and it's been really wonderful ever since. Yeah. So one thing about your website, you, you did mention that there are lots of, um, you know, a lot of text basically explaining more about the product, the the origin, the the farmer that that's involved in it. So there's always this kind of question about how do you build a better product page? And there's a lot of emphasis on a lot of photography, which you still also have lots of great photography. But when it comes to text, that's usually sometimes ignored. Where we don't spend enough time creating this 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 the, 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 the copy essentially that goes on the product pages. How did you know that that your customers wanted to to read more? about the, the products itself well we said at the beginning we said we don't know what our customers are going to want maybe they'll want social proof so we added reviews we said maybe they'll want photography maybe they'll they want to read but we got a lot of emails asking about the spices and asking for more information and so we ended up just saying oh huh, this is interesting great let, let us talk to you all day long about where cinnamon comes from and what makes this cinnamon so special and we love that and, and we got really good responses from, from customers kind of reading the website, saying that's so interesting. I never knew that cinnamon was tree bark. This farmer story is, is, is really cool. And, and that's also a competitive advantage because no other spice company, if they're not sourcing directly, they don't know who the farmer is. They don't know exactly where it grew. They don't know, you know what makes it so special. It's just this kind of like massive commodity version of this product that, that is truly an average. <laughs> and then often that average is you know, below average. But so that's where we, we got to talk to our customers. We had a number of customers that said, hey, I want one of everything on your site. And we were like, well, add one of everything to your cart. <laughs> and they were like, no, we want you to do it. And we heard that from a handful of people. And we're like, okay, we're going to introduce our complete collection, which is one of everything with one click. You get one of everything on the site. And it ends up being between $250 and $300, depending on how many spices we have on the site at, that, at any given time. That was our eighth highest revenue driver in 2020, which I just couldn't believe. Like I had no idea that people would want to spend that way, but a lot of people were either sending it as housewarming gifts. Some people said, hey, my spices are really old. I'm going to do a full pantry renovation. And so I guess this is just comes time and time again to customers emailing us and reaching out. And we've really tried to make our site in a way that is really easy to reach out, to reach us, to reach out to us in any way that you want. Because when a customer runs into something and they have a question or they don't know, they're going to spend one second trying to figure out how to contact you before they just bounce out and say, whatever, I have other things to do. I'm going to get this elsewhere. It's not worth it. And so many companies, like the customers don't get to hold our product. They don't get to smell our product. They don't get to taste it. So the website really has to do all the heavy lifting to help them understand what they're getting and how they're getting it and what it will be like. And so that has really helped us, these long descriptions to say, Oh, you like cinnamon, but you don't know if you like our cinnamon. Let's give you 800 words about what makes it so special. And that in turn also ends up helping a lot with SEO. Um, and that also has helped a lot with PR because, you know, opening up these stories of, of where spices come from. You know, we know where everything else in our pantries comes from. Our meat, our produce, our grains, our coffee, our chocolate, our tea, our wines. You wouldn't buy wine that you didn't know where it came from. 
And so, so that's been a really big part of saying, Hey, spices too. You know, we know that this hasn't been an option and in most places will have no way of telling you because spices come from many countries and many farmers, and, you know, take years to get into the country. Um, we're changing that. And so that is again, like one of the competitive advantages that we have is to be able to share with you where they come from and, and what makes them so special. Got it. You had mentioned to us that the, the business was first focused on restaurants and uh, you know, amazing restaurants that, that your, your products are being used in. And then, but you had this, this, this goal in mind of eventually transitioning into home cooks being your, your main customers. Tell us about that, that the business model shift when that happens, when you go from kind of a B2B business over to a B2C business. Yeah, we did. We did what was in front of us. And what was in front of us was my co-founder emailing his chef friends and saying, do you want some spices? <laughs> and then going door to door and then doing all that. But that ended up actually having a good, that was a really good place to start because it legitimized us. It's the same way that like Under Armour sponsors athletes. You could be like, look at all these incredible chefs that you admire that are using our spices. Don't you think these would be good in your home kitchen too? And then we realized something that everybody told us was was the wrong way to do things, but ended up being really helpful. As we said, we're bringing these spices in. We're bringing them in usually in like big 25 kilogram, 55 pound sacks. We said, we don't care how we sell them. Like we like, so we, we started selling them in food service, which was in like one pound, one quart containers. Then we started packing them into jars, which were half cup or four ounce jars. And then grocery stores were like, can I have these? And we're like, yeah. Sure. And so they were packed in cases of 12. So we said, do you want to buy a case of 12? And they said, yeah. And then some of our bigger restaurant customers and even some food manufacturers came along and said, hey, I want your spices, but I can't afford them at the price. And I don't want like 50 one pound containers. Can I just buy a sack? And we were like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so we, we were two full time people with four lines of business. We would sell to food manufacturers, to restaurants, to grocery stores and direct to consumer. And, and everyone said, that's insane. Each one of those could be a business in and of its own. And you need dedicated teams and this and that. And we were like, no, it's all being sold through Shopify. We have the inventory. It's easy for us to pack it in the different sizes and to just get it out of the shelves. And so, so in 2020, what ended up happening is direct-to-consumer took off. You know, we were 50% of our revenue came from restaurants in 2019. And with the pandemic, that went to just about zero as all the restaurants closed and indoor dining was banned and all of that. But everybody was cooking at home, so direct-to-consumer grew and grew. We always knew we wanted to be mostly indirect-to-consumer. And the reason for that was that we get to email our customers directly. We get to have that direct contact with them. We have tens of thousands of customers that are ordering. Um, and we get to, to interact with them again and again versus one massive customer that could, could you know, pull us off their shelves. And that would be the end of our business. And the other point is that direct-to-consumer is higher margin. And so what we're able to do is we're able to do more fun stuff with that margin. We can cover shipping. We can add free goodies. We can have extra spices. We can launch new things. We're working on a fun sheet of magnets just for fun. So people can throw it on their, on their fridge. We made kitchen towels that have our logo on there. So like it's been, we've been able to kind of have a lot more fun and try to make the, the direct consumer experience a lot more interactive, a lot more interesting, invest more behind it, pay our customers support people more, pay our farmers more, do all these things that has helped grow our business in ways that would have been challenging to do through a, through the kind of higher volume, lower margin channels, you know, at least at this stage of our mm -hmm. company's life. Got it. Yeah, you had mentioned that you have the system set up too to be able to tackle all of these different channels that you're selling through. Can you tell us more about what, what goes on in the back end of your business? Like what are some of the tools or apps that you rely on to run the business? Yeah, absolutely. So everything is through Shopify. 
all of our sales, everything happens through Shopify. And so sometimes if we have a restaurant or a grocery store, they'll email us their order and we can put it in behind the scenes on our end. Um, and what we've done is we've done a few things. We kind of coded a custom wholesale store. So if you log in and you're tagged as a wholesale customer um, and, and you, you'll see only our wholesale products. So you'll see cases of jars, you'll see sacks of spices, you'll see all that. So you can kind of order, order that yourself if you want to, or we can just service it ourselves through there. We use, you know, the bundles app to create easy bundles. We have a DIY bundle. Like we, we've just tried to like time and time again, like, I think it's really easy to look at companies that are like four or five years in and you look at your website one year in and you're like, I want it to be like that or I shouldn't launch until it's like that. But what we instead did is we said every week we're going to launch something new for the website. We're going to do better photography. We're going to upgrade our reviews app. We're going to change the way that, you know, referrals are added. We're going to add a gift note. We're going to improve the packing slip. And so like every week we just have a product that we would just implement on the site and then slowly, over a year, over two years, this site got a lot better and looked a lot more professional and then becoming like a better and better experience for the customers going through that. So we are we are still all in on Shopify. We use a bunch of different apps. Stamp.io does our reviews. You know, we have we have all the free shipping bar. We have advanced shipping rules to figure out how to like make a nicer, you know, have the shipping rates displayed in a nicer way. If anybody ever wants to know all the apps that we use, they can just email me directly. Um, but, but really like Shopify has been the core of that business and it's allowed us to run our business. All right. So burlap and barrel.com and I'll leave you this last question Ori. What would you say is the, the key goal that you want to reach as a business in 2021? Uh, that's a great question. You know, as a business 2021, what we want to do is really strengthen our operations, like figure out, we, we've been trying to figure out how we do things and, and how we ship things and all that stuff. And now what we're doing is we know what we want to do. We know our customers. And now we need to build all the systems to help all this flow easily through our systems, which will then allow us to grow two, three, four X in 2021. And so that's our biggest focus is just turning the things that used to be manual and, you know, every time, how do we do this and how do we prioritize and all that? We're going to turn those into strong systems and create processes within our business. And I know that sounds super unsexy, but that's really important in terms of delivering the promise to our customers and making sure that you order whenever you order, we can ship it within one business day. It can arrive within two business days and you can just have this really great experience that makes you not need to go to your grocery store to buy mediocre spices ever again. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and come on and share your experience, Ori. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.